0: Hub and Spoke Audio
1: Collective.
2: Two wield words, two wield words,
3: two wield words. Two wield words, two
4: wield words,
3: two wield words. Hi, I'm Lori Mortimer, creator of the podcast Mementos, and member of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. This is episode three of the Hub and Spoke Radio Hour. We created this show to highlight the kind of work we make here at Hub and Spoke. I want to give my words some wheels. Today's Radio Hour theme, love. Love because today is Valentine's Day, and love is in the air, along with syrupy greeting cards and price-gouging bouquets of roses. What do you get when you fall in love? But it's not like that here at Hub & Spoke. When it comes to love, we're talking about something else entirely. Today you'll hear excerpts from four Hub & Spoke podcasts, Each touching on a different type of love or a different way of looking at love. I want to give
2: my words some wheels.
3: We're talking about love that makes you hunger, literally and figuratively. Love that summons your strength while it soaks you to your bones in grief. And newfound love that surprises you and heals something you didn't break but was broken nonetheless. You'll also hear from several of our show's creators who want to share with you how they fell in love with audio and how that love fuels the work they make. And if you're feeling the love for Hub & Spoke, please consider supporting us with a donation to our collective fund as part of our Valentine's Day fundraiser. Check out hubspokeaudio.org love. Two wheels is where so much begins.
5: Hi, my name is Matt Frassica. I'm the producer of The Briny.
6: I'm Willow Belden, and I am the host of Out There.
5: And tracing the moment when I fell in love with audio is a little bit tricky.
6: So I fell in love with audio when I was a really little kid, and my mother listened to NPR every morning. She would have Morning Edition on.
5: I grew up in a public radio family, so... Every day on the way to school, I listened to Morning Edition in my dad's car.
6: And this was long before smartphones, so it's not like she was listening, you know, on headphones. She had an actual physical radio in every single room of the house, including the bathroom, so she could listen, you know, while she went about her morning routine.
5: So public radio was always kind of a cozy, homey feeling. But another moment happened... In the dark of night on a long drive through Vermont when I listened to a new to me podcast of a show called Radiolab, it was using sound in this totally bizarre, creative, fun, surprising new way.
6: I think part of what I love about it so much is just how honest and personal it is You know, I always like to say that a lot is said that is not words in audio. And so often, like, the best sound bites are wonderful, not because of what the person says, but how they say them. And it's their their inflection, it's their intonation, or really meaningful little silences where you know they want to say something and they also really, really don't want to say it.
5: But also, the way that they used silence is really interesting. The way that they allowed... The concepts to breathe with these moments of quiet, they allowed you to sort of sit in this feeling of wonder that was really special and felt incredibly intimate and powerful uh, um, to me as I drove in the dark.
6: And those are the things that I think make audio just really, really special in a way that other media don't. Quite capture. So if you love this as
5: much as we love making it, go to hubspokeaudio.org love
3: and show us some support. Thanks. First up is Rumble Strip. In this excerpt, Erica visits with her friend Forrest, whose wife had just passed away after a long illness. As the episode begins, Forrest is making Karen's pine casket by hand with the help of some friends. What I love about this story is the way that Forrest expresses his love for Karen in such simple, plain actions and words. It's so very Vermont, but it's also so very universal. Forrest stays pragmatic and almost matter of fact while making the casket. He doesn't fuss over making the angles perfect. It's going in the ground after all but he's also meticulous in making sure every detail of the casket and the funeral is just how Karen wanted it. When he stops and talks about his life with Karen, the small details of their days and their evenings, we hear the full range of emotions in his voice. The love, the grief, the new and unfamiliar loneliness. Here's Forrest Foster lays Karen to rest, Another remarkable piece of audio from Erica Heilman at Rumble Strip.
7: These, are going to go on here, and then we're going to have the end ones will go all the way around, and then we're going to have on here like a one by two, so the cover lays on those two boards that he put on top right there. Also,
0: oh, the, cover's uh, the flush. cover is
7: going to be the same as this, just down flat down. on there. Yep. Doug said it's fine, and that's what would be in a normal thing. It's six inches longer than a liner for a like a bronze casket or a granite casket. Yeah. And You've got it all sawed out? Or you- oil, sawed yeah, sawed and planed. It's all planed on one side. Yeah. And but we got a good start on it. That's Forrest Foster and Butch Greaves and
2: Steve Gorlick building Karen's coffin. Karen Shaw, Forrest's partner of 43 years, died on Memorial Day after a long illness. That morning, Forrest and Karen and their son Taiki rototilled her garden and put up the fence. Karen transplanted some of her starts. She and Forrest went for a drive in the late afternoon, and after dinner they went outside and watched the fireworks in the valley over Hardwick. Late that evening, Karen died. The next day, Forrest and Stephen Butch built Karen's coffin out of pine boards Forrest had down at his deer camp. I asked if he wanted me to record, and he said that he did. It wasn't easy, and it's taken me a while to listen to this tape and make the show, but like always with Forrest, I'm struck by the combination of pragmatism and love about everything he does, and burying Karen was no different. Here's Forrest.
7: We're going to line the bottom of the casket so she's in a bed of cedar bells with the horse blanket laid on them, and then it'll it'll lean up on her clothes, because that was her last look at Morgan Stallion. That was his blanket, and it's been laying around the shop. I use it to crawl underneath the vehicles, because we don't have a horse anymore, and so we're going to leave that with her, it was one of her great joys in life, and some flowers, and Cooking utensils and it's a couple of different things to just be something a thing to remember. My father has a set of driving lines for big horses, and his chopping axe and some George Washington pipe tobacco and a Meerschaum pipe it was like a fancy English luxury man's pipe. And he only used it when he was sitting in the house.
2: And so he was buried
7: with that? He's buried with that in his stuff. And the one set of team lines is around the casket. They lowered him down in it on driving lines. He had them in his hand all his life.
2: What are the cooking things that you're going to, to put in? Oh,
7: a big wooden spoon, a stainless steel bowl. that She said that's bigger than she ever dreamed. And what was special about the stainless steel bowl? It was a bread bowl. It's it's thin, light, but you can make four loaves of bread at a time. Well, four loaves of bread would last her a month. <laughs> and she liked that bowl. She liked that bowl, and she used it for, like, if we were grinding meat. Set it under the meat grinder and, and grind hamburg into it, and then package by package, she'd get it, but that bowl was handy. So
2: she's going to have a bowl and a wooden spoon and some... Somehow.
7: Wildflowers and yeah, we'll think of things. And if people come along and want to leave something there, it's fine, it's uh, together everybody can enjoy her. She could be pretty ugly, but she was right most of the time. So, God bless her. Well, see how much you've got here. That may be the right. Uh, that's nine and three quarters. That's yeah, less than either one of them. Yep. Yeah. So we've got to go the other end. Well, let's, we'll, yep, let's cut, cut it off. We'll we'll use cut that all those knots off, off.
1: Anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Everybody goes through this sometime, but nobody yeah. prepares you for it.
7: No. Well, I think I was better prepared before mentally than I was there because she had got so much better. and was having a good time doing a lot of work. You know, s- small amounts, but she was getting a lot done over a week's time and doing and eating and drinking. And she, two times she took a car and went down shopping on her own. And so that was quite a little gain to me. And she was happy with it. And just just like that, it w- was gone. She just wanted to be dumping the ground and throw some dirt over
0: it. Okay, that's fitting a lot better. Yep, that's what
7: I kind of thought. That right there is even. You think this is too fancy for her? No, this I'm going to be very happy. And the cedar boughs and the horse blanket, but it'll, it would suit her good. That's Absolutely. Darn good. She was adamant about not being cremated. We're going to do just what she wanted to do. Well, also, Butch, I got that tractor running. Dead. I ended up having to replace the gaskets in that fuel line that was leaking. Yeah, and I think it was when the when I was turning over, the pump was sucking air in yeah, there. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah,
0: so it was even though you had the injectors loose, it still was it wasn't getting out. any
7: fuel, so yeah. it was air was coming out. Yeah. Very good, very, very good.
2: When are you gonna gather the boughs and all of that?
7: If I get her, uh, get everything else ready and get the burial permit ready, I'll do it Tuesday morning, right when he's ready to bring it, whenever he's got time. And then we'll put the boughs in fresh, lay the blanket, and he's gonna put her in the, we can lay a blanket over her, you know, kind of make it happy. And I'll have the little pillow that she had under her head last night. She went to bed and had two pillows under her to set up so she could breathe easier. And and just plain wasn't to be. But I'll put that under her head and cover over and put the horse blanket and then put the cover on. And and we'll go up and put her in and set things up. And if people want to say something or whatever they want to do, it will be. Their share. Can we make the brackets out of that one? That we did? Yep. So for, do you a come along? We're not going to get that goddamn technical in another 48 hours. This is going to be buried with dirt with a dead body in it, I know. and it's good. Dad and I won't. Fussy. Now he carved out quite a lot of his pieces with a chainsaw. His taper came with a chainsaw. Dad's is, is starts here and goes out. By his shoulders and then comes down and tapers in. Did you see it in the? Yeah, you no, I, I was there for that. You were? Yep. Yeah, well, it was a good looking casket. It was beautiful. He ain't called up and bitch. Now, let me tell you one about Steve Golan. He came here, so I <laughs> went over to Cabot. Remember what I'm talking about, Steve? You mean, like, working on the sugar house? There you go. And he was sure. Enough that wasn't no way to build a building unless you had eight sheets of blueprints and numbers and angles and all of this. So I throw down some tobacco wood, laid the ends across like that and took a chainsaw and cut them in half and cleated some stuff in there. And 21 years later, it's still standing out there.
1: <laughs> I didn't say anything about blueprints.
7: But I no. might have said something about
0: measuring. Oh. Yeah, that might have been his imagination. <laughs>
7: No, I wouldn't fuss with that a bit. I'd make three cross pieces. They yeah. can go all the way across. Oh, I see, okay. We ain't got USDA coming to certify it. Yeah. Look good to you? It's good to me. Well, let me ask you that a different way. You keep angling questions. Okay. Would you be satisfied in a box yes. like that if you would be? I am, yeah. I am. I'm not gonna- I want the
2: cedar boughs though.
7: Yeah. oh yeah, that's part of it and that will make this noise. When we've killed something and we had done our own cotton and wrapping and put it in the freezers and stuff and there, and she'd all you know, do this with that, and she'd write it right on the freezer paper, so she knew what she wanted to make for that meal with that stuff, and it was good. It was a lot of good times.
2: You used to like going
7: for drives. Yeah. She still did, that's what we did the other day and went up around the mountain and back in. It rests her, you sat down and looked, and if you ain't driving, you can go up all over and ask what's this and what's that and liked her. And one night last week in the kitchen, she wants me to find out how much would one of them bent glass greenhouses cost 40 feet long in the front of the house. And so she'd have more greenhouse space during the winter. but. She, she enjoyed her hands in the dirt and green growing out of it. But there was uh, they it is it's a country western song on the radio. And Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, what the hell does he say? He says, hot bologna, eggs and gravy. And so that I'd sing it when I'm, or she'd bring me a drink. Turn the car off and hear me I'm sitting on a little open top tractor singing to sing into the top of my lungs a morn machine or something's going on. So I went in one morning, I says, What's for breakfast? She says, hot bologna, eggs and gravy. And by God she'd made me hot bologna, and eggs and gravy. <laughs> oh God, yeah. But little things like that, you remember, it's uh it was good. Just weren't long enough.
1: That was Rumble Strip from the one-of-a-kind Erica Heilman, the voice of Vermont and the best listener we know. I'm Christopher Lydon from Open Source, the world's first and longest-running podcast, with a little secret about what we do. If you knew how much fun it is to have your own independent radio show on the web, you'd want to be doing it with us. In our podcaster's alliance we call Hub and Spoke. We stay out of each other's way because our passions and our curiosity run every which way. To art, politics, music, news of one neighborhood or news of the world. At Open Source, I get to engage my idols like Yo-Yo Ma, diplomats too, poets, pioneers. If there's a thread connecting Hub and Spoke shows, it's the thrill of free conversation with lively minds around serious ideas and stories that can only be told one by one. If that's the listening you love, you want to be helping us preserve and promote independent podcasting. Here's how. Go to hubspokeaudio.org slash love and pitch in. Do it now.
3: Okay, wow, I'm jumping back in here after Christopher Lydon and Erica Heilman, two friggin' audio icons. I'm just going to take a second to bask in their glow. Hold on. Okay, I'm good. Although this next piece also involves someone who died, it's really about a young man being brought back to life, in a sense, 60 years after he passed away and had been forgotten. In this excerpt, From my show, Mementos, my guest Cherie tells us how she discovered and basically fell in love with her grandfather through letters he'd sent home while serving in the Korean War. While growing up, Cherie learned only that her grandfather had died in a war. Nobody really talked about him. By the time Cherie was born, her grandmother had long since been remarried, and her grandfather had already been gone over 15 years. He'd been killed in action in Korea. Plus, over the years, Cherie's nuclear family fractured apart. Even Cherie and her grandmother had grown distant. So when her grandmother passed away, they hadn't spoken in about 20 years. So imagine Cherie's surprise when she inherited these letters, letters she did not even know existed. And through them, Cherie comes to love the young man who became her grandfather long after he'd died. Through the letters, Cherie got a surprise about her grandparents' relationship, which makes Larry's support of Mary even more
8: remarkable. He and my grandmother had been divorced before he went to war. They got married when they were 17 years old, so they were children. And when you look at the dates, it seems pretty obvious that they got married because she got pregnant. But he's just so sweet to her the whole time, and he talks about how she would always be very special to
9: him. You'll always mean a lot more to me than just an ex-wife because we were together and did too much to ever forget even if it wasn't for the fact that Gary is part of us both so baby doll take care of yourself and tell Gary that I never stop thinking of him and naturally when I think of him I also think of you
3: You know, not surprisingly, Cherie has opened and read through these letters many times since she got them. But one time, not that long ago, she found something new when she was trying to put one of the letters back in its envelope.
8: The envelope felt kind of heavy after I took the letter out. And I just, I kind of gave it a second thought, but not much. And then I was reading through the letter and I go to put it back and it won't go in very well. And I realized that there are two photographs in here. They're the only photos I've ever seen of this man, which is just kind of miraculous to me. Think about that. She'd never even seen a picture of her grandfather
3: before. And when she saw these photos, she was struck by just how
8: young he was. In my mind, he's an old person, but he died when he was 23. The photos also captured the bleakness
3: of his surroundings and what he was living through while stationed in North Korea.
8: Of course, they're black and white, so like there's no color to them. And you can see it's a very desolate landscape where he is and you can see hills. Um, There's a lot of rocks. There are no trees whatsoever. And here they are guarding this post.
9: Except for the guard duty half the night, we don't have hardly anything to do but every so often we have to go on patrols of the Chinese lines to see where and what they are doing. Going on those patrols I can't say I like too well. As far as I'm concerned they can stay on their hill and we will stay on ours. It gets me that so many fellows have to get hurt and go through so much just to take one of these worthless hills. I just hope I get out of here before too many more months because every week seems like a month itself.
8: He talks about how they do live in tents and it snows. You know, they were digging into the snow in the hillside to get themselves into a warmer situation that was just for insulation because it was so freezing cold. He said it would take them about an hour in the morning to put their boots on because everything was frozen.
9: More guys have left here because of pneumonia, or frozen hands or feet, than those who have gotten wounded or shot. I got frostbite in January, and my knees are still bothering me from the cold that has set in them. I'll be home sometime this summer. I'll have at least 30 days leave, which I'm going to spend at the beach. The sun will feel so good after having spent the winter here.
3: After getting frostbite and suffering with the lingering effects, Larry makes a fateful but consistent decision.
9: I could have gotten off the front lines because of it, but I would have been moved to a rear area where I would have to stay twice as long.
8: I I have a lot of respect for the military and the things that they do, but when you're reading about a single person's existence and their experiences, it also can make you feel... Like, here was this man who was full of life, and he didn't come back. And it really does make you wonder, was that life worth losing?
3: The letters are kind of an extended family treasure trove for Cherie, because she learned that other family members were very supportive of Larry
8: while he was overseas. One set of the letters are to Bernice and Ted Boyd. And I can only surmise that Bernice and Ted were my grandmother's parents, so my great-grandparents. I'm just putting this together because he sent a bunch of letters to these people, and it sounds like they took care of my father a lot. And that just lets you know how fractured my family was (laughs) and how little I know about a lot of these people.
9: Dear Bernice and Ted Just received your letter today You're right, spring is here Right now, I'm sitting in the sun Enjoying the sunshine I sure hope I never spend another winter Like this year has been I'm still having trouble with the cold That had set in my bones For a while, I even had trouble walking But they are much better now I would very much enjoy Some cookies from you They should be wrapped airtight Wrapped and thin, put into a coffee can they keep very well. When I get home, I'm going to get you to make some popovers. I haven't forgotten how good they are or how swell you make them.
8: There is a very last letter in all of this, and it's in a return envelope. And it is a letter from Bernice Boyd that never gets to him because by the time it gets overseas, he's already died. Dear Larry, yesterday your mother read to me over the phone your letter that you were in the hospital and hurt in the leg and knee. We have all been praying for you during all these months. I have pictured you in our home in chairs around the house with faith that you would be here. We told Gary last night at dinner that you were hurt and in the hospital. Larry, the expression on his face was so sad and so deeply hurt. I told him right away, quick, that his daddy would be home soon and that he was getting well and the expression changed right away to one of happiness. He loves his daddy. We all love you. God will take care of everything, Larry. Right always wins in the end. I will accept the future as God's will. I have been making preserves to go into those popovers. Relax now, Larry, all you possibly can, and don't worry about anything. Love Bernice. He really liked popovers. Just assuming that this is the mother of his ex wife, there was just a very loving situation all the way around. And had he had the opportunity to come back, they would have all still at least had friendly relations. Who's to say how things would have turned out in the end? I can only fantasize about them. Being that my father didn't turn out to be the nicest guy or the most responsible person.
3: Cherie's father, Gary, the little boy in the letters, was entirely absent from Cherie's life.
8: By choice. My mother got divorced from Gary Hood. Uh, about six months after I was born. So I never met him. Uh, He has since passed, so I will never meet him. And my grandmother, I love to pieces, but she definitely had her challenges and she could be a challenging person. And then there's sort of this shining light of a person who ends up getting killed. And so it's, you know, it's sad. And I I hold on to these because he really just felt like such a good part of a history that I didn't even uh, that I didn't know about, and then I got this gift of getting to know about him. It was just this really it, uh, it just it made me really happy to feel like there was this person who had been in the world, who I'm related to, who I kind of got to know just through these series of thirty three letters that he wrote to people. I brought him to life for me. And nobody else had done that. And the fact that he got to do that, that was really special.
0: My name is Patrick Mitchell, and my show is Print is Dead, Long Live Print. I am a career magazine maker and my business is dying, slowly dying, and I, I felt compelled to try to preserve its memory. I, the form of preservation is the stories, and stories I think go best in audio. Plus, you know, to hear it in the voices of the people who made the history just makes it that much more real. I'll tell you, I, I notice when I'm editing audio, I close my eyes because I wanna shut off all the other senses. But by doing that, your brain starts to create a picture. And I don't know, there's something compelling about that. I will tell you one of my favorite things about editing audio is it's like nerding out on perfecting the sound. Like I, I, I love seeing the sound waves. I love manipulating one sentence next to a cut and, and putting the, the sentence before the cut and the sentence after the cut together and try to make it sound natural. And I, I just find it, it's like, it's, that's how I do my design work. It's the same thing. Just sort of the, the craft of, the visual craft of audio, I guess, if you will. If you love what we make as much as we love making it, go to hubspokeaudio.org love to support us.
3: our next story from Ministry of Ideas, host Zachary Davis deftly walks us through what some might call an unsavory history. Cannibalism, as well as false allegations of cannibalism, used as justification for slavery, colonization, and genocide. In Western cultures, why do we have a seemingly instinctive aversion to cannibalism? Why do we find cannibalism transgressive? What's the relationship between slavery and false accusations of cannibalism made by Christopher Columbus and other explorers about indigenous peoples. Is there ever a case when eating human flesh is acceptable? What about in non-Western cultures? What if some of them see the human body in a completely different way than Westerners do? And what does any of this have to do with love? Zach addresses all these questions in the Ministry of Ideas episode, Consumed. Let's dig in. So the hair is commended for the production of hairs, for the jaundice, and for stopping a hemorrhage.
4: That's Emily Anderson again. She's flipping through a replica of an old corpse medicine book that's displayed at the Museum of Man in San Diego. Corpse medicine was a European practice of using body parts from deceased human beings to heal the sick and wounded.
3: The ideal person from which you wanted your corpse medicine was a young, healthy man, Strong, young, healthy man um, who had died a quick, violent death. Because at the time, for these people, their understanding of death was that it wasn't instantaneous. That you know, a quick death would leave an essence of that person still in their body, and that if you harvested that, you could transfer that essence to you. This wasn't something that only you know people out in the far sticks practice. This was cutting-edge medicine, um, theorized by sort of the
4: leading scientists of their time. Corpse medicine was not limited to the recently deceased. Here's Bill Shutt.
10: To me, probably the most interesting was a mistranslation of an, of an Arabic word, mumia. And apparently the, the Arabs, when they were in Egypt, described this tarry substance that, that the ancient Egyptians used in preparing mummies. And the Europeans, when they came along, mistranslated that word, mumia, they believed that they the, the, what was being talked about as having medicinal value were, were real mummies. And so there was a run on mummies and mummies were being brought back to Europe, not to display in museums, but to grind up into powders and elixirs. And there was a shortage of mummies that took place. And so there were, there were all of these ersatz mummies popping up. People were preparing bodies that had just died to make it look like they had been mummified. Uh, and all this from a culture that used the term cannibalism as a as a bludgeon when they encountered foreign cultures Europeans who
4: practiced corpse medicine consumed the bodies of human beings but corpse medicine wasn't called cannibalism neither was custom of the sea cannibal was a label reserved to denote a savage unchristian practice and thus savage unchristian peoples the irony goes even further Western explorers tended to emphasize the violence and viciousness of cannibalism in the New World, but cannibalistic rituals were often performed out of love. Some tribes who adopted this devotional cannibalism saw it as more civilized than European alternatives.
10: One of the ones that, that, that jumps out at me uh, is, is a group of indigenous people from Brazil, and when the anthropologists moved in and met up with them in the 1960s and, and early 1970s, and this was a group called the Warre, and the ware were just as disgusted to learn that Westerners buried their dead as the Westerners were to learn that the ware consumed their dead. And, and so their response was something along the lines of, how could you think it's civilized to put your dead loved ones in the ground? Why wouldn't you incorporate them into yourself? Why, Why would you let worms eat them?
4: To Europeans, the idea of consuming a person's soul was a depraved practice. But for the Wari, it was the best way to keep a loved one close. Devotional cannibalism was performed around the world. In China, dynastic records show how people practiced a form of cannibalism similar to corpse medicine. Bill Shutt describes one such example.
10: And so there were examples for, uh, of filial piety where a loved one, usually an elder or parent or a grandparent, was really sick. That one of the last resorts would be that you as a grandchild or a son or a daughter would cut off a piece of your arm or your leg and feed it to your loved one with the idea that this would have medicinal value.
4: Stories like these complicate European colonial categories of civilized and savage. Indeed, the French essayist Montaigne explored this very question in his essay On Cannibalism 600 years ago. He questioned whether it's more evil to eat a dead human than to torture a living person. Montaigne forces us to reckon with the fact that our cultural norms are sometimes only cultural conventions, not the absolute truth they claim to represent. Europeans might have claimed cannibalism to be the most barbaric practice imaginable. But in fact, their accusations of cannibalism led to the torture and deaths of millions of natives from the Americas and Africa. Medicinal and ritual cannibalism have for the most part ended around the globe. Because of the Western taboo associated with it, many tribes have stopped partaking in traditional funerary rites. The Wari, for example, now bury their dead. And with the advent of modern medicine, corpse medicine and similar practices have faded into obscurity. But literature and media continue to use the image of the cannibal to represent society's most terrifying monsters. I remember exactly how I fell in love with podcasts. And unlike many people... It didn't begin with cereal. In 2014, I was working in Harvard Square, and I lived about two miles away in Union Square, Somerville. And every day, I commuted the two miles, whether by walking or by taking a bus. And it was a pretty annoying commute. And in the fall, I noticed a new app on my phone, Podcasts. I'd heard of Podcasts, but I didn't really listen to them. But I opened it up, and I typed in the first topic that I was interested in—philosophy. Up popped a show called Philosophy Bites, with David Edmonds and Nigel Warburton, two British philosophers with just delightful accents. The first episode that caught my eye was one on swearing, so I pressed play. And in 15 minutes, I learned more about swearing than I ever thought possible. And it was such a warm and inviting conversation. Most philosophy presentations are very formal, but these were like friends having a chat and exploring new ideas and truth together. And I was immediately drawn in. And I just love that feeling of being invited into a secret room. One that I never would have had access to. But suddenly, I'm right there with them. On my commute in Cambridge. It was amazing. If you love what we make as much as we love making it, go to hubspokeaudio.org to support us. And thank you.
3: Whether the devouring of human flesh is for survival, for conquest, or for reverence and preservation of a soul, it's primal. Our next piece from The Lonely Palette explores a more metaphorical consumption, still primal and also at times transgressive. The overpowering sexual desire for another's body is often described as hunger, appetite, craving, thirst, and a yearning to devour. In her episode about 18th century painter Jean-Honoré Fragonard's The Desired Moment, host Tamar Avishai explores Fragonard's saucy, sexy paintings and his depictions of the boundaries of foreplay, coquettish resistance, true resistance, power, and passion. Is love a game, or are the stakes higher? You might want to grab a cool glass of water for this one because it's about to heat up in here. Sexuality
11: between lovers, meanwhile, returns us to this idea of the game. And in this game, on balance across many canvases, every player is on equal footing. It just depends on the dynamic of that particular moment, that particular canvas. A woman in a painting from this period could just as easily be the seducer as the seduced, as we see in Boucher's saucily titled Are They Thinking About the Grape? from 1747, which depicts a shepherdess in full-on seduction mode, holding the titular grape up to the expectant mouth of a youthful and inexperienced shepherd. And spoiler, no, they are not thinking about the grape. But equal footing, as we're keenly aware today, is a murky concept at best. I quote Janelle Monet, by way of a misattribution to Oscar Wilde, that everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. And in this power struggle, there are presumably winners and losers, dominance and submissives. And what Rococo painters, Fragonard especially, seems to be saying is that we should assume that everyone is ultimately left satisfied, even if we walk into a moment of the action that seems to, shall we say, blur the lines of consent. Fragonard was a big fan of presenting the struggle, of watching the sexual dynamics play themselves out for the benefit of a higher erotic purpose. Take his painting from 1770, The Feigned Resistance, which depicts a woman coquettishly turning away from her lover, but exposed and aroused enough to tell us to butt out. She's fine. But his more famous, The Bolt, from around 1777, is a little more ambiguous. And this turnabout suddenly makes this all feel much more third rail. The title refers to the bolted lock that a man reaches to close, half undressed his arm secured around a woman who is struggling against him and reaching for the same bolt we assume for the opposite reason. And we're perfectly within our rights to ask, how are we meant to experience this painting? There's much more of a power differential going on here than someone withholding a grape. And it's been explained as a moment of violent passion, foreplay, role-playing, not rape exactly, or at least not culminating in rape, because Rococo painting in general has led us to believe that she's most likely into this. But the fact remains that when we look at this painting, we don't know if she's resisting because she is genuinely repelling the attack, or if it too is a kind of feigned resistance, if she's playing the game. We don't know if she capitulates out of desire or out of defeat. And this discrepancy can't help but leave us a little uneasy and a little aroused. And we don't know which feels dirtier. And this is what makes the desired moment so unique. When we come to this moment, this desired moment, we're past the game playing. We're arriving, finally, at the act at hand. There's no cheeky innuendo here just the mutual consummation of carnal desire. The lovers in this painting are embracing so passionately, they don't even seem to notice that we're looking in. And this is fairly uncommon in Rococo painting. Even if the figures aren't acutely acknowledging the viewer, you do get the sense by and large that they're a little performative in their dramatics. They're thrilled to be caught in the act of whatever romantic entanglement they've gotten themselves into. If the bolt captures the moment of dramatic resistance, the desired moment captures the moment of gentle surrender. This is a moment of mutual satisfaction, of tenderness. Her arms are wrapped around his neck, her face is tilted into the kiss, and her fleshy white body seems to be as squishy and comfortable as the feather bed that cradles it. There's little ambiguity about whether or not she's into it. She's into it. And though his face seems a little underpainted, and the rendering of his hands a little clumsy, and I think we need to accept the fact that Donatello has spoiled us forever when it comes to hands depicted with sensitivity and nuance, what is really being painted here is a truth in desire. His exposed shoulder is hot. Her back muscles and the curve of her lower back and that little dimple are gorgeous. This painting is entirely about two people getting it on, and I, for one, am here for it. And the general sense of desire coming off of this painting plays into a somewhat apocryphal statement Fragonard once made that, quote, if I could, I would paint with my bottom, end quote. Art historians believe he was a bit more of a gentleman than is belied by the crassness of this statement, but also think that it's entirely plausible that he did indeed say it, although meaning something a little bit more profound. He's basically saying that he approaches sexuality like a horny adolescent would, all appreciative impulse, grateful for the pleasures of the flesh. Fragonard was never one to position himself as the grown-up in the room. He's not telling us to put it away in public. Instead, his paintings are just as experimental towards sexuality, just as amused by it, as the figures that he depicts. He, as a painter, is just as driven by biological imperative to capture human sexuality as any sexual being is to experience it. Hi, this is Tamara Vishai. I am the host of The Lonely Palette and a co-founder of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. And I just want to thank you for getting to this point in our episode and our fundraiser. The moment that I really first fell in love with audio, um, I was actually at uh, a party that I had no business being at. A friend of mine worked for This American Life, and so she brought me to an after party for one of their live shows. And it was before Serial, it was before Gimlet, it was when these were just a bunch of self-deprecating nerds who hung out together and asked each other really interesting questions and described everything really beautifully. And I found myself at a bar with these producers, and all of a sudden I heard what sounded like the radio in the other room, and it was Ira Glass's voice, except there was Ira Glass with the voice coming out of his face. And I just realized that these were real people. And these were my people. These are people who are genuinely curious about each other, and about why people think the way they do, and offer incredible ears. And they just seem to share something really fundamental about being human. And I just didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave that room, I didn't want to leave those people. And I spent the next decade trying to get back into that room. If you love what we do as much as we really love doing it, then go to hubspokeaudio.org slash love and support us. Thank you.
2: Spin me like I have already spoken, like a spoke holds its tension. Like it's together that the spokes are the invention of a wheel, that a wheel is only as round as its tension, that a wheel is a round invention.
4: She gets on her bicycle, she gets on her bicycle, she gets on her bicycle, she rides.
3: Thank you for joining us for this deep dive into love, Hub & Spoke Style. This episode was mixed by Tamar Avishai, with production help from Nick Anderson, music by Evelyn Parry, Blue Dot Sessions, and just a touch of Dion Warwick. I'm your host, Lori Mortimer. I know we've been asking for financial support throughout this episode, but you can also help us just by spreading the love, the audio love, the hub and spoke love, all of the love. Personal recommendations are one of the best ways for independent shows like ours to find new listeners. If you love what you heard today, please tell your friends and family about us and where they can find our shows. You can send them to hubspokeaudio.org. We'll be back in a few months with the next episode of The Radio Hour. Thanks again for listening.
2: The same thoughts that cycle round. The way I recycle the same stretches of ground on my two-wheel bicycle. It gets me...
4: She gets on her
0: bicycle, she gets on her bicycle, she gets on her bicycle, she rides, she rides. Hub and Spoke, Audio Collective.